Ghost Podcast. That isn't my jingle, but if I had one, it wouldn't be like that. It'd be better, which wouldn't be hard to do, let's be honest. All right, so no singing for me. That's not my skill set. That's not why I was put on this planet, that's for sure. I'm obviously a very giant proponent of challenging the normal ways we systemize, organize, and think about things. And the reason I don't tend to like labels and I don't tend to like the term normal is because all humans are so different and we all experience an array of emotion and sometimes we're going to have our shit together and other times we're not. And that's going to happen throughout our lives, this deviation of being in normality versus not. So I prefer to think of it as at this point, I'm in this part of the human experience. And that way, our lives are flexible to be as they are. We're not saying, you know, I hear all the time someone been saying stuff to themselves like, or to me, I shouldn't be sad anymore. And I'm like, but you are. So, ha, you know, or I shouldn't be feeling this way or I should be over this by now. I'm like, but you're not. So what are we going to do with it? And this is this thing that we as humans have, which is that we are constantly at war with the truth. We don't like that we feel a certain way or that we are a certain way or something's happened. And we're constantly trying to deny what's true. And when you deny what's true, you're going to start to feel like you're going crazy because you're living in a world where you're not connected to the truth and you're going to feel anxious and you're going to feel depressed and you're going to feel lots of different ways. Now, the ways that we as humans and our emotions and how they build up and what they cause us to do and not do, I mean, I think it's so fascinating and it's something that I'm forever diving into and exploring and man, I'm just so fascinated by us, right? By myself, you know, looking at why I do what I do and, you know, this constantly being a beautiful, not a persecution of who I am or not a judgment of who I am, but this, which I can't say I'm always good at, but this like loving curiosity of when I don't show up as the best me, why? When I don't turn towards what's good for me, why? When I make choices that aren't in alignment with who I want to be and what my values are or my integrity or whatever. Like when my unconscious or my shadow self shows up, then I want to get curious about that so I can start to understand myself a little more. And, you know, that's this concept or idea that we get to turn our mess into our message. We get to, you know, make what hurt us become our platform of teaching and our mistakes become a real giant source of wisdom that within the spaces of where we get triggered is actually this giant, beautiful piece of wisdom that is just inviting a different behavior and a better behavior. An upgraded behavior is maybe the right term. This week, I'm really excited to have on uh, my good friend, Megan Suter, who is an intuitive, a coach. She, uh, Her and I worked together. That's how I originally met her. And she's just transformed her life. She's like one of those badass people that like learns something about her life and changes it and is constantly expanding and stepping towards her gifts and her truth. And she's a very inspiring person and she's passionate and she gives a shit about everything. And I love that about her. She's just unapologetically who she is. And I've watched her and been inspired by her as she steps towards that more and more and more. And I think you're really going to love this one. Such a journey through 
the path of, um, and the reason I was saying that I love challenging the way we systemize things. And I also know that the subject of mental health is very triggering and sensitive for people, which it should be. And she just has a beautiful uh, journey and story, and I can't wait for you to hear it. And, um, you know, as with everything uh, that I share, take what you need and leave what you don't and just enjoy. And before we begin this, wherever you listen to this podcast, if you can go give it a five-star review, I'd be so grateful. And if you could leave a written review, that would mean the world to me. Um, it's such a beautiful exchange for all the time and effort that I put into this and resources. And uh, I'd just be very thankful. And if this episode resonates or any others, please share them so we can get this into more people's ears. So without further ado, Megan Suter. Today is a special day. I have both a good friend, former client, and what it was self-healing guide. Yeah, self-healing the... guide, self-healing coach. I like that. I like that term. I feel like I that's like it too. Uh, and, and explain why, because that's why I like it. When you explain it, I'm like, yeah, that's what you are. Yeah. Should we say my name too? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's mystery guest today. <laughs> Guess Megan who it is? Suter. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Should we say, do you want to run this podcast? <laughs> uh, sure. Okay, so now that we got out of the way who the host is, um, <laughs> do you want to share uh, why? Yeah. So you asked me just a minute ago what I call myself, and I think we, we agreed that it's a work in progress, but what I am leaning towards is self-healing guide. I struggle with the word healer. Some people might put me in that category, and I choose not to because I believe we all heal ourselves. Yeah, I agree. That's why I loved it so much because it really is the idea that the interventionalist, the teacher, the book, yeah. the audio, the podcast... Um, really just reminds you of you, you know, like reminds the person who's listening of a power that is inside them, a resonance of something. That's why congruence or being in integrity with oneself, whatever that means for oneself, is the ultimate North Star for someone else. You know, that's exactly it. And I think that's how I came to find you, right? Like your truth, your integrity online is what made me believe that you were reading my journal. And speaking, <laughs> and speaking to me via Instagram. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And um, a lot of my work began from this knowing that if I started writing about stuff, I had to live it. And I knew that was going to be the ultimate accountability was like being true to my word, which I can step out of and then have to step back into, you know, like any human, you're not perfect. You Absolutely. Don't, you don't even know what your integrity or your alignment is till you step out of it. That's the joy of life. Well, and the pain of life. Yeah, exactly. And the place we have our biggest awakenings and learnings from. Yeah. So when we met, mm -hmm. where were you? <laughs> so we met in 2015. I like to tell the story that I was sort of living this life that from the outside looked, I don't want to use the word perfect, but great, right? Mm -hmm. People probably saw me you know, fit and running a business and living in a great apartment and, you know, lots of friends and just having a great time. But on the inside, I felt really empty. I won't use the word depressed because I don't think that was it, just really unfulfilled. And I knew there was something more out there for me. And the, the, the symptom that was most glaring that that was true was my romantic life and my relationships. 
So at the end of 2015, I was in a relationship with somebody who didn't really want to be in a relationship with me. And I also found you on Instagram at the same time. And I signed up for that course that you used to run. What was it called? How to get the love that you want, getting the love you want. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Relationships 101. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I signed up for that and it was on a Saturday. And there was all these that like, so the relationship thing was a symptom. And then I was also using drugs to like stay out of integrity to make myself comfortable in where I was. And so that was on a Saturday. And on the Friday night, of course, I went out with this guy and we stayed up all night doing drugs and I missed the course and (laughs) emailed you after and said, Hey, I missed your course. I didn't tell you why, but I'd love to work with you one-on-one. Can, can we talk? And then you, yeah, reached out to me. You said, yeah, sure. Let's have a discovery call. And on the call, I told you a little bit about what was going on in my life. And you were like, okay, yeah, great. So we could work together but you're going to have to break up with that guy. (laughs) 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 And I was ready to, I just, you know, in, in pretty much every major change in my life, sometimes it just takes someone kicking me off the edge. And that's what you did. Well, and it's interesting because in a lot of, um, circles of work, they would say never to say to someone what they need to do. (laughs) (laughs) I worked with another person who was in a relationship with someone who was married. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. You got to end that relationship in order to begin because we'd be starting way out of integrity. Yeah. And there was obviously much more information rather than just that. But in that, like whenever anyone speaks truth back to someone, they're only reflecting what they hear. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's uh, about filtering the noise that someone else has through all the reasons, the excuses, the self-sabotage, the drugs, the whatever of like, this is your alignment. I didn't figure it out. You actually just told me, I'm just telling you back what yeah. you already know. And that's why it shocks people because they go, uh, you know, like, Oh, I knew that shit. Yeah. You know, I better have another scotch. No, <laughs> no, actually he should stop, break up with scotch for a bit <laughs> or Scott, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, you did it. What I loved working with you, um, about working with you is that as soon as you learn something, you're like one of those people that can't fuck around anymore. You're right. Like, like, oh, God damn it, I got to break up with that guy. Yeah, well, and I, I knew it was the right thing. And I think, you know, I, I'm sure this wasn't a test from you for me, but it felt like, okay, this guy wants to work with me. And like, this is the this is the path I need to take to do that. And so, yeah, watch me, I'll do that. It was almost like a dare, you know, and I needed something to to kind of snap me out of where I was. That competitive nature, right, can serve us so well. Exactly. Where all of a sudden we're like, oh, you wanna, yeah. you wanna challenge me? Yeah. You know, in another way too, it's, uh, I, I love what you said there, that it was sort of, it felt like a dare or a challenge in that. Because the other option is I shrink who, I shrink my standard of behavior for the people around me to meet you as a client. No, right? Like that can't be. And I, I think probably all interventionists in some way have done that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't serve the client. It doesn't serve the person to do that, to to allow them to stay in a rut, um, as opposed to meet them in the rut and invite them up. One thing that I remember uh, when we were working together, I forget what the context of it was, but I remember you saying like, Oh, I'm, I'm about to be depressed. Do you remember that? Yes. 
Yeah. I, or like, I feel like I'm already depressed or I can yeah, see the like symptoms. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it'll be here Saturday. <laughs> sure. I think yeah. depressed post is said there's a delay in shipping, but it should be here <laughs> Saturday. It's, it's on its way. And what I loved about where that led is, is it led to, do you want, cause I think you're, um, for people listening, your past and your experience is so resonant to so many people's past, although you have some pretty crazy experiences that I look forward to you sharing because I think people listening, stay in, stay on stay here. Stay tuned. This is, it's going to be a wild ride. It's going to get juicy. It's juicy. <laughs> it already is juicy. Yeah. All right. So um, I remember you said to me, mm -hmm. I said, how do you already know that you're getting depressed? Like, like you're expecting this delivery. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is how I feel when I'm about to be depressed. Yeah. Which for people listening who that resonates with, that is such an interest because of the label, we continue to go down the path thinking it's not preventable, that we can't turn around the car there. And I remember saying something to you like, well, why don't we just stop now and just go back or like rise from this place? Yeah. And you explained to me your, your experience with depression as a child. Yeah. So yeah, do you want to? Yeah, we can, we can go all the way there. So what I want to say about that yeah. invitation specifically, and, you know, I think I knew we were going to talk about this. Um, like, oh, no, I'm so happy to, because, <laughs> because it, it's really, there was two things happening, I think in that moment. And it, that was the last time that this happened. And so, yeah, well, that was another really, you know, a powerful moment of reflection in our work together. And, you know, another perfect example of how the interventionalist is always the reflection and the person is always the healer because all you had to do is say like, well, is that true essentially? And it allowed me to, in that moment, think like, oh, maybe that's not true where every other time I've just made it true, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, so that was a good point. And then when I looked back this week or last week, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, I realized that labeling myself and saying, you know what, this is, I'm about to be depressed was because it was getting hard, right? Because, and I'm like tearing up a little bit thinking about it because the work that we did together, while it was life-changing, there was moments that it was so difficult that I just didn't want to go any further and just on the other side of that always is the biggest breakthrough, <laughs> right, is the most right. expansion. And so I, I realized just recently that like the, that was the language that I used to stop myself from feeling pain, mm -hmm. right? To not go any further. So interesting too that that pain, like the perceived the, I might experience more pain mm -hmm. is more familiar than I actually might experience because what's in that space, if you take responsibility and control, um, and not to shame anybody who ha hasn't been able to do that or has never conceived it that way is so much expansion and joy. That's right. Right. It's like familiar road, familiar road. It's just like neural pathways are like, oh, yeah, we've always thought this thought. Mm -hmm. Why are you introducing a new thought? We have we're good. We're a family. We're a family of sad thoughts. That's Why right. are you introducing a new friend who's, yeah. who's joyous? Get out of here. Yeah. You know? We don't want joy. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that beyond you know, when I look back to moments in my life, which I'm sure I'll have moments in my future, mm -hmm. where there's sadness and grief that you like recognize often that you're in a space where you're 
completely disassociated from your own pain or like starting to disconnect Mm -hmm. and to realize like those are the moments you need to anchor is like good habits, good food. But those are usually when we're like Chicago mix. (laughs) If anyone doesn't know what Chicago mix is, let me tell you. Delicious. It could be, it's a good, sad friend. (laughs) And, you know, but Netflix and exercise goes out the window and drugs enter the window. That's right. Alcohol and all these other ways of numb instead of finding, uh, uh, like ways that are light to actually feel. Yeah. As opposed to numbing the feeling, you observe the feeling with meditation, you know, like these different ways. I think that's it. And I think at that point in time, when you, when I said that, I had also taken out the numbing agents, right? So not only had I broken up with that guy, um, Deadbeat Daryl. Well, I'm just kidding. I yes, no. <laughs> it's funny. I was just going to say <laughs> he's such a great person and we're actually dear friends now, but we were not meant to be in a romantic relationship. <laughs> I don't know if his name's Daryl. I don't think it was. It's not. No. That just rhymed and it was great. So <laughs> let's just move on. Okay. And so, so I had also taken, so I had taken Deadbeat Daryl out of the picture and I had taken cocaine out of the picture and alcohol out of the picture. And I was, you were in it. I was really just alone with my emotions. And this is perfect segue to go back to the first kind of bout of depression that I was diagnosed with. So when I was eight years old, I can't remember a ton of what was going on. My brother who had never lived with us and who who was himself severely mentally ill and developmentally disabled, came to live with my parents and I. I was eight, so he would have been 21 or 20. And, you know, that was a big change in and of itself. There was a lot of turmoil with him in the house. His anger was pretty out of control. And he was just um, between the group home and the hospital that he was going into. So he needed somewhere to live. And I would say although I can't remember that that was the trigger for this event that happened. So all I remember is my mom saying, you know, you, I came home from school and the school had called and I had slapped some other kid in school in grade two. And my mom, you know, with all of the tools that she had and all of the experience she had decided to take me to the doctor. Yeah. And my doctor growing up, my family doctor diagnosed me or suspected I had some sort of depression. So he referred us to a psychiatrist and I started seeing a psychiatrist when I was eight. And he also medicated me when I was eight. Wow! And if there was a sound of like blame or a tone of blame in there, I have no blame for my parents or for my doctors. You know, they were just using the tools that they knew how to use. And probably it helped the medication. And the ideal too is, or sorry, the idea being we can tell stories in hindsight and recognize that there might've been better choices available, right? It's not to shame the choices people made, but to recognize that there are other pathways that people just didn't know about. Yeah, right. that's it. I mean, my mom could have just as easily taken me to see a shaman. Like, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. But it happened to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. When you take medication for mental illness, it masks everything, right? Yeah. That's kind of the the side effect is that, I mean, the positive effect is that it masks the depression a little bit, lifts your serotonin, gets you out of that place a bit, but it also masks the higher emotions on the other side of the spectrum, right? Joy and mm-hmm. excitement and whatever else, whatever else you can say about it. 
And I, you know, my sense looking back now, like you said, telling the story and, you know, in hindsight is that I learned two things to mask my emotions, all of them with medication. And when it wasn't clinical medication, it was drugs or alcohol. And I also learned how to not speak my emotions and not feel my emotions by way of the medication. And also I thought that that's what people wanted out of me, right? Like Mm -hmm. subconsciously, I think I adopted this idea. Okay, well, if I have emotions, I better not show them. And so here's how I'll mask them in all these different ways. Yeah, you and I were talking about that article I sent you on the um, effects of chronic stress, chronic stress on a child's brain. That's right. That was written by Hillary Jacobs Hendel, who's got a book called It's Not Always Depression. She's going to be on the podcast, actually. Um, And she is really dope. But I think in the it's interesting when you actually look at like a child who's going through what you were going through. And then if we were to get curious rather than be afraid of your sadness or your aggression. Sure. You're like, you're not acting out because you like slapping people in the face. No. You know, you're eight. Like you're obviously, there's some anger, there's some sadness, and there's a lot of disruption in your home. Yeah. I think uh, I'm not a parent. And you know the saying, um, you're always the best parent till you have kids. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to just own that before I share any yeah. thoughts. If you're a parent listening and you're like, screw this guy, uh, just know that I'm, I, I will be humbly put in my place when I have a child. But I think if we can as parents, and I will ideally be able to do this yeah, with shit on my shoulder and, you know, being peed on and all the things, <laughs> um, be able to not be afraid of the truth of how the home is and the truth of the disruption. Because it's not like your mom didn't know the home was disrupted. Sure. But it's like, add Megan's sadness to the plate. Oh, I don't know how to, you know, and I find it's interesting that we often want to rescue our children and other people from feelings we don't know how to sit in. Mm-hmm. And that I think in a lot of ways, that is part of that hereditary nature of how we handle emotion is, I didn't have the tools, so I try to rescue you from that emotion. You then use a numbing agent, whatever it could be, sugar as a kid, phones now, video games. And so you never get to sit in that. So as a hereditary path, none of us can sit in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. And you know, there was there's so much to my and you've taught me this this phrase, my family constellation, right? And to everybody's. And so, you know, if this sounds familiar to anyone and they're thinking they're feeling a bit of like blame or accusation towards their parents, I think it's really important to like then get curious with your parents too and ask questions about how they were raised and how they were allowed to feel their feelings. And, you know, my mom and I, thank God, and my and my dad too, we have able we've been able to have those conversations ongoing because I think two things what like that happened for them as they put me into therapy and psychiatry was that, you know, the medication masked my emotions, but it also gave me these tools to like explicitly and directly express how I was feeling. And even though I wasn't like on a cellular level feeling the emotions, I could name the emotions and then I would ask other people to name their emotions too from a really young age. How old were you, man? That's like badass. (laughs) Well, I wasn't like, I identify this. Is that how you're feeling? (laughs) But I, you know, because in therapy, you're just like taught how to speak and how to express yourself and encouraged to do that. My parents inadvertently, I think, created like a little mini therapist in me. (laughs) And so we've had many, many uncomfortable discussions about that point forward. You know, what 
David, my brother, coming into my life and living with us, what that caused, what the what the sort of trickle down effect was that was that for my entire life. For kids, a lot of the time that can be a conflicting emotion because like my parents are stressed. My brother's here. I should have more compassion. Mm -hmm. I may eat. Yeah. You know, I just want mom to be around or dad to make me feel safe. Why are we prioritizing this new kid's safety? Oh, wait, it's your brother. Just, you know, it's there's so much of that that happens yeah. where like mom's sick and getting cancer treatment and you want mom around. So you're angry that mom's not around, but you're not allowed in some way to feel angry because they have cancer, you know, like these, yeah. all these different ways of being in that you're allowed to be in more than one feeling. Right. Well, and you're putting it in such an adult and articulate way. Whereas a child, what, what came up for me was like, okay, when my brother expresses his anger, which was great. And my brother was like six foot three and at the time, like 200 plus pounds, big guy, you know, bigger than anybody else in my family. And his anger was very visceral. And so I turned my job, eight-year-old Megan turned her job into being quiet and in the home and hiding and I'm such a sensitive person, like I'm so many, so many people that are listening to this probably are too, identify as an empath. And so with badass boundaries, with, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And, and so at the time I didn't have badass boundaries because I was eight. And so yeah. Yeah, I'm like taking tall. on every single person in the room, all of their emotions, trying to heal their emotions with my body, which is a gift that I have that I didn't know that I had then and I don't use now, but it is part of my makeup. And so not only was I taking on all of my brother's emotions, my parents' emotions, but I was also taking on their physical feelings. And so, of course, I went to hide in my home, you know, and that's now, you know, something I've worked through as an adult. And it's easy to look back and describe all of that as an adult and then now work through it as an adult. But at the time, that was my only coping mechanism was just to hide at home and then slap some other little kid at school <laughs> to get my emotion out. Like, I'm a little mad you're going to get slapped. Yeah. I find it interesting, too, that when we do things like talk therapy, which could be coaching, too, that we often learn how to intellectualize like you learned at a young age how to speak the language exactly you, you know and i think everybody's bright everybody is capable of learning manipulation and you know so we learn how to speak the right words that will make the adult leave us alone you know and then and and we'll be able to take control of the dialogue and but we're not embodied in the feeling. So we're like able to cerebrally understand and label the feeling that satisfies the adult. But then when it comes to actually feeling the feeling and expressing the feeling, because, you know, if you're an angry kid, you're not looking at being like, I'm angry. <laughs> you're like, I want to go play a sport. I want to go hit a twig against a tree. Yeah. Um, you know, like we start to do other things. We need to express it in some way exercise, whatever it is, rage, mm -hmm. yelling. So it's interesting when we learn how to, because I, I resonated with what you were saying that I learned in a lot of ways how to almost be uh, like vulnerable, but I wasn't actually being vulnerable. Yeah. I was in the act of vulnerability. Yeah. People were like, that's so vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm like, it is. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Yeah. I just shared a feeling that I labeled that I don't feel in my body because yeah. I know when I say this to a girl, she's excited about my feeling. And that was because I was so disassociated from my actual feelings because I had so much grief and pain in mm -hmm. there from breakups. So, you know, it's a... You're nailing it. You're like 
nailing what I'm getting at, I think, which is I embodied the ability to label emotions for the pleasure of other people. As a survival strategy. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I've only just come to this realization in the past sort of six years. And that's why it's actually like sometimes long-winded the way that I explain it. But I've spent my life long-winded. Don't worry. Yeah, I know. This will be the longest podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's why I have a podcast. <laughs> like, hey, guys, want to hear me process my thoughts? Exactly. With another person who's processing theirs. That's right. And so from eight till maybe nine or 10, I was on antidepressants and then came off of them. And then at 12, as things do, sort of started to go a bit haywire, probably with the introduction of, you know, more hormones. I, because of my like sensitivity when I was a kid and because of this like projection of what people, like what doing what I thought people wanted me to do or say, I tended to lie a lot when I was a kid and like make up stories for attention or whatever. And so because of that, I was bullied quite badly when I was a kid. And I went into grade seven when I was 12, I guess. And that was at the junior high where I grew up. So I went from elementary school to junior high with all these like, you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds. And that year, um, the bullying just kind of reached a new, a new level. And so going into grade seven, I was, I was doing well, but by my 13th birthday, I can just remember things had gone quite south in terms of like my mental health and my social situation. And so were you being bullied by Boys and girls or? Yeah, yeah, both boys and girls. And mm-hmm. and like there was physical violence involved wow. and it was, it was a really hard time. And, and, and I really turned into a different person that sort of my birthday's in January. So post my 13th birthday, I, I turned into like a really nasty, angry 13 year old and took it all out on my parents, mostly my mom. And so they, that year brought me back to the psychiatrist that I'd seen when I was eight. And, uh, he put me back on medication and I switched schools. Did anyone seek to like talk through what you were feeling? Like your actual experience of like where you fit in the family, how your feelings didn't felt not like they didn't matter. No. Wow. Yeah. And, and people tried to intervene, like other people in my family, two aunts specifically, who lived a more holistic life, um, you know, saw things through a wider lens, I think. And, and again, like my parents had this lens because they were kind of constantly in dealing in crisis mm-hmm. with my brother. And so that's how they dealt with my brother was like, take him to the hospital, take him to the psychiatrist, up his medication, change his medication. And, yeah. and that's what in quotes, worked for him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think for anyone listening, you know, there is a place for medication. Absolutely. We're not saying there isn't. A hundred percent. I want to add that caveat because I know it often can be a triggering subject, uh, but we also appreciate the grace to be able to explore this subject because it's important to explore. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. You know, it's, you, you know, seek help in whatever way is helpful for you. And I was, you know, may as well just say it now in case people are feeling a bit triggered or sensitive about this. Like I was on medication from when I was 12 till I was 21. So there was a place for it in my life as well. I just think of like, and not to discredit that, I think of like the, if someone can teach us 
how to actually process the suppressed, repressed emotion then, and to recognize, you know, what ultimately anyone wants. And this is true of workplaces, like the best workplace cultures is where someone feels psychologically safe to be themselves, to have an opinion, a thought. That's true of romantic relationships. That's true of friendships. That's true of families. You know, if you give a child the space to have the experience they're having and not make it wrong and not, you know, but at some point when it gets so repressed, it turns into depression and into anxiety and all the things. There's just other pathways that are available now, which is really beautiful. Yeah. They were then, they're just not as mainstream. You know, you couldn't Google back then, like, hey, going through a hard time, what's happening? And they're like, back then you just put on a sad song and you just hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. Or right. took your kid to the doctor, or, yeah. you know, whatever that that is. And, and you know, th I was like violent towards my mom, like extremely angry. I was yeah. at 13 taking acid, getting blackout drunk, like you know, wow. doing all of the things that I could do to express myself or not express myself, you know? And by the end of that, that summer between grade seven and grade eight, things had just really escalated. I switched schools to avoid the bullying. And then the bullying just started in another way at the other school. Mm -hmm. And so that year, uh, like October that year, my doctor, my psychiatrist, admitted me to the psych ward um, here at Vancouver General, to the adolescent psych ward. And that's by choice. Like he, nobody forced me. It was funny though. He took me on a tour there. He was like, let's just go look at the facilities. <laughs> um, yeah. And so he took me on a tour. And at the end of the tour, he introduced me to the resident psychiatrist there. And it was a woman. And she asked, you know, Megan, there's a space for you here if you'd like to come. And they kind of described it a bit like a vacation. <laughs> and it's just like uh, that all-inclusive in Cancun, except exactly. not like it at all. Yeah. You can't go outside. <laughs> you don't get unlimited walks. You can't go outside. There's no ocean. There's no beach. <laughs> and so I, I admitted myself. Um, wow. Not that day, but not too many days post that. And was there for two months. And it was a really nice vacation from my life. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A little yeah. break. Exactly. So I, when did you, how old were you when you, you got out of that? I was still 13. Wow. Yeah. So I got out in like around Christmas time that year. Yeah. Celebrated Christmas at home and turned 14 in January. And then things, yeah, really shifted again for me. I ended up at an alternative school in the town that I grew up in. And that really helped as well because I went to school with a bunch of really wonderful misfits like me. What a great feeling that must be to yeah. like finally feel like you're amongst company. Like, it, it, oh, I'm normal-ish. Exactly. And these people are like me and that's, and like super accepting of me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was, that was super helpful for me. Was the feeling, um, if you could label it because mm -hmm. you were a master, mm -hmm. uh, are a master, It was it that you finally felt seen? Like, what was it? Yeah, I mean, the word that comes to mind is included. Like, I finally felt maybe seen, but, but safe and accepted. Mm. Yeah, and I, I was still hiding myself. So there wasn't, you know, people saw what I was showing them for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did anyone see behind it? Probably a couple of teachers. Yeah. Yeah, definitely one teacher in particular. And he 
kind of like you, and these are like the best teachers in my life, the best coaches in my life have been able to see what I'm hiding and speak to that specifically in kind of a direct and stern tone, like not letting me get away with bullshit that, you know, a lot of other people let me get away with or didn't even know I was getting away with it, if that makes sense. What's well, amazing when our survival strategy is, is like both cerebral, like the ability to label things and, you know, mm -hmm. manipulate mm -hmm. when it's manipulation and charisma mm -hmm. and whatever, or outbursts. Yeah. That, that becomes, I, I find this often when I'm seeing like what someone's survival strategy was as a kid, mm -hmm. hiding our feelings, becoming an, a chameleon to mm -hmm. the environment. It ends up becoming like sort of their superpower as an adult. Not that hiding your feelings is, but identifying people who hide their feelings. Um, being a, When you can fully step into what your survival strategy is, it becomes like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, right? You spend 10,000, you're an expert at whatever your survival strategy is, and then you can label it and see it in other people so quickly. And when you can call someone forward as opposed to out, but your heart is connected to the calling, that's different, right? And then being like, you're a fucking asshole, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's a call out that might be true. Yeah. But when it's intentional and from the heart that says you're safe to come forward, I see you and the other person goes, damn it. Which I've, again, all my best teachers, same thing. What's, I remember I got asked by one, what's behind your smile? And I was like, <laughs> none of your business. There is so much behind it. <laughs> yeah. It was like the first time I'd felt seen behind my smile. Well, I'm curious, and I'm sure other people are too. What What was your coping strategy when you were a kid? Like, how did you, how did you hide your emotions? One, I adapted to the environment. Mm -hmm. I was the youngest in my family, so one was like it was an entertainer. It was like humor. Yeah, I used humor to deflect from my pain when I was. Uh, really heartbroken as a late teens, early 20s. One was alcohol. That was not as good of a survival strategy. Mm. <laughs> uh, but it was to use humor. It was to entertain. It was to self-deprecate. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get ahead of you. I'll insult myself first. Mm -hmm. Then you won't be able to. I already took it away. Mm -hmm. ha -ha, and people laughed, you know? Yeah. So I started to become the master of controlling the room. Well, and I think that's what makes you so good at what you do is like you're able to identify that again, right? And and label it and move past it. You know, in that moment on that first call when you said to me like, sure, we can work together. I'd love to work with you, but you got to break up with that guy. I was like, oh, he sees me. Like that's that's the thing is that you saw me and, you know, jumping forward a bit, like that's what I want to bring to my relationships with my clients and my, the people I love. You do bring it. Is them. like, hey, I have been in your shoes. I am a master manipulator <laughs> and I can use that power for good now in seeing in other people and inviting them out of that. And so, yeah, I think that's why you and I resonate so much together and why you have been one of my greatest teachers because you've come past that like I have as well. Yeah, I just got so good at seeing all the ways I was, <laughs> I could hide. Yeah. You know, and I was versatile. I had a lot, you know, and that's, you just start to understand that humans can only really express their dysfunctions. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but their challenges. Sure, their issues. Or yeah, whatever. in so many ways. There's not actually that many ways. That's right. Um, even when we start to look at the subject of mental health, you know, I, the complex system of how our bodies operate in emotions. We actually, again, it's 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 so fascinating to start to look at the cascade that the biology does with emotion and what happens when we suppress it and 
to look at just sort of the adventure your life has been, you know, adventure, not, not including the, the hard, challenging times. Or sorry, including the yeah. challenging times. Because I know it. So then it, you went to the school and then and then you were how old when you got out of that school? Or what was yeah. the next? Yeah, what so, was the next bump in the road? Let's stay on the bumps here. So I had this really heartbreaking and fascinating experience when I was at that school. And the my best friend and a friend of his um, accidentally murdered somebody, killed somebody. Wow. And the story is public knowledge. Like it's, yeah. it's all out there and I won't go into the details of it, but you know, the, the, the underlying thing for me in my life is my integrity and is my intuition both. Right. So even when I was like really out of integrity and like how I was treating my body, how I was treating the people I love, there was always this firm sense of knowing what to do. Um, the, and I'm, I'm putting this in quotes, but like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so when I learned about this accidental death, I told my dad and, you know, we were still recovering from what our relationship had been when I had turned so angry, but my parents were so they're, I mean, saints because just accepted me no matter what. And so I came to him and I said, you know, I learned about this thing and people are trying to keep it a secret. And I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think I should tell somebody. And he said, that was on a Friday. And he said, okay, Megs, I'll give you until Sunday to do what I know you're going to do. Um, but if you don't do it by Sunday, I'm going to have to go to the police. Wow. And I said, okay. And I knew what I was going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went to the police and that started a, so I was 14 when that happened. And that took on like a seven year life cycle. Like that didn't, that saga wasn't over for seven years. And so that started a whole new round. You know, when people found out that it was me, I was one of the people who went to the police. There was three, three women who went. Uh, and when people found out that it was me, because I just knew, even though that person was such a dear friend to me and I loved them so much, like that's another level, right? I can't protect somebody in that space. And so yeah, you're not meant to hold a secret for someone else. No. You know, and anyone listening who does that, yeah. it's just a survival strategy. It's a, it's such a beautiful one, don't get me wrong. But it's like when we are, often I think, you know, parents can put people in that place where they say, don't tell your dad or don't tell your mom or... Don't tell anyone. Yeah. yeah. And, or you catch them in something. It's such a, I mean, again, it all is challenging. Um, but it, the weight of carrying someone else's lies is, or their untruths is heavy. It's too much for the body. Yeah, exactly. You know? And imagine what that person's going through too, right? Oh like, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And this, this person that this happened to there, there was three people involved and the person who I was close to is, was such a kind, loving person. And anyways, made a mistake, made a big mistake. Exactly. Yeah. And, and paid for it and probably is still paying for it. But the outcome of that was that I was, it started a whole new round of bullying, another cycle of bullying. And Interesting. When you report a crime, more crime. you then get bullied. Yeah. And, and beat up. And like more, wow. more people went to jail because of that. It was, it was another terrible moment in my life, but I managed, I think because of the skills I learned through therapy and at the hospital and I was still on medication, I was, and and I think because it was like, the right thing to do again, like for me, it was you were connected to yourself. Exactly. I was yeah. con connected to what I knew was right for me. 
I held my head high and continued to grow and learn and just be myself. But I had to, you know, testify against them three separate times. Wow. Once at 15, once at 17, and once again at 21. You know, each time I was terrified, but it brought me to this like next level of maturity and growth. So even though it was one of the hardest times of my life and and certainly for everyone involved, the hardest times of their life, really powerful experience. I love about it too, is it was like for the maybe one of the first times there was an absolute acknowledgement of your own integrity mm-hmm. and your own feeling yeah. that you didn't ignore because you couldn't. No, there was Like no you way. wouldn't allow yourself to. And then you stepped into that, which was really like stepping back into the eight-year-old saying like, hey... I didn't forget you. Mm-hmm. That inner voice that is usually a kid. It's usually a kid who's got the like congruence, the like, hey, I've been telling you all along, like, can you tell this person to get out of our life? You know, like yeah. those, but we often ignore it because we, someone else ignored it. And so that reintegration, that reconnection, because I mean, I've watched you fully step into like, like you don't fuck around when it no. comes to what your feelings are, to claiming your worth, to having boundaries, to stepping into your purpose, your path, like you just keep doing it. Well, I I do, but I think sometimes I'm going to rephrase. I do. And (laughs) sometimes it takes the most extreme thing, right? I have to almost push all the way to the edge of that, of, of living out of integrity until something really big happens. And then I'm like, not forced back in, I step back in, but yeah, I guess it's something about pushing things right to the limit as well. Yeah, the interesting how the human yeah, often does that. Exactly. Like, you know what? I'm going to wait till I have to rather than I choose to. Well, that was a big shift for me. Yeah. Was like going from have to to choose to. And that is probably the most empowering shift I've ever made. And how did that happen for you, do you think? It happened because I I would repeat again, I used my brain to live in the gray area of integrity. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, because oh, I, I made a rule that I would have all the conversations I didn't want to have because those are the ones that matter. And then I remember I wanted to break up with this girl and it was about like three weeks. I'd waited three weeks. I knew I had to have the conversation because I made a rule that you have to have all the conversations that matter. Sure. But then being that I know how to dance in the gray area of integrity, I was like, I'll just wait three weeks, you know, till I, I'm going to have it. I'm yeah. just going to have a good time till I have it. Sure. So then I... um I messaged, I think I met her. I met her for lunch and I broke up with her. And she said to me, I will never forget this. She said, you knew this three weeks ago. Whoa. And you waited Mm. and you kept me in a relationship that you knew you were leaving. That's not fair. And that night I went home and I cried, I remember. Mm. And I wrote in a journal that I had started about the like, I'm going to have every conversation. It was where I put all my like promises. Sure. I probably still have it somewhere. Yeah. And then I wrote, I like rewrote the rule. I will have the conversation when I feel it coming instead of waiting because I realized that the new level of integrity was being implemented. And that became a rule of, I will always live at my highest level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as I learn something, I have to change because then it becomes a choice instead of a mistake. And I was so good at living in mistakes and I used alcohol to justify that. So that's how it came about. And I mean, it's always an implementation because you keep looking and observing the gray areas of integrity. Because even look at culturally, 
we make agreements like it's okay to evade taxes. It's okay to avoid this. It's okay, like to steal cable. It's okay to download movies. Mm -hmm. But where's our line? Sure. And for me, that line just kept like, am I in charge of my own integrity or am I going to do what society does? And uh, that learning has been a good one. Yeah, absolutely. For me as well. So you've testified oh, three yeah. times. <clears throat> yeah. And um, and still on medication this whole time. And and then, yeah, life just became less, um, hmm, like around 21. Life, life became a le- less dramatic, less hectic somehow. There was all these, you know, crazy points up until 21. Like, did you move away from home at that point? I did, yeah. I moved away from home when I was 19. Oh, and I'll say that I, I left that alternative school after grade 10 and I went, I integrated back into high school, public school um, outside of the town that I grew up in drove to school like 20, 25 minutes every day and, and, you know, really enjoyed the last two years of high school. Did you get bullied in the new school? No, I became the bully in the new school. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That we pivot, right? Sure. Because you know, like aggression is significance. Yeah. If I'm powerful, no one will pick on me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I became, because I was, I was so sensitive. So that would have been like 16 that I went there. And I was so sensitive that that's a big reason why I got bullied as well. Like I'm not blaming me as the victim, but my sensitivity is a piece of that pull for bullies. And so... Uh, Yeah, not guarded sensitivity. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know that I I needed to be guarded and I don't don't need to be guarded and nobody does. Just by yourself. But yeah, you just need to like protect yourself a little bit. And so... So I, I learned likely through that sort of second round of really severe bullying just to, again, even more shut off my emotions. And so by the time I got to this other school, I was living outside of my body, really in my head and just in, employed that strategy of like, fuck you, I'll get you first kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and became this tough, popular girl. Like I call myself a mean girl from high school. And that strategy worked for me until I skipped so much school in grade 12 that I didn't graduate. So I had to go back. It was only grade 11 and 12 in my school. So all of the girls that I bullied in grade 12 or when I was in grade 12 and they were in grade 11, I had to come back. And now I was alone. And you had no peer group. (laughs) No friends. Yeah. And they all bullied me again. (laughs) So it all came back around. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, finished school that year and went to Europe, went traveling, came home. And then I moved to Whistler when I was, I think like late 19. And that's sort of around the time where I, you know, you kind of come into your own as an adult around that time. Right. And like all of the things that have happened to that up until that point, you sort of integrate and yeah, lived like a really fun social life in Whistler. And I think that was probably around the time where I started thinking about coming off my medication. And when I was 23, I was in a relationship with a guy and he encouraged me to to look at that. I went back to therapy because it was always, for me, it's often been big changes in my life, like big shifts in my life that destabilize me a little bit emotionally, which they do for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's normal. Yeah. And, and because I was having these destabilized emotions and I was taught at an early age that unstable emotions lead to depression, I would often check myself back into therapy when I started to feel a bit wobbly or unstable on my feet, where now I know it's like, 
oh, just go for a walk in the forest, go lie down, rest, read, check out on Netflix for a little bit if you need to. But at the time it was so jarring for me that I would go right back into therapy. And so Mm. I went to see a psychologist um, who had a more holistic approach to mental health. And my partner at the time, yeah, encouraged me to think about getting off medication. And so yeah, I guess I was 20, like in between 22 and 23 when I went off medication and stayed off of it. And what were the strategies that, because I'd imagine you're both being uh, monitored by your psychiatrist yes. coming off of it, titrating the dose down. Yeah. And then what were your new strategies that you used to, f- now you have these feelings and ranges, Yeah. I'm guessing, yep. is that true? Yes. That you start to feel more ranges. Yeah. Um, and also withdrawal, right? Because there is big withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. Stuff from those. So we went super slowly. Uh, and this is great for listeners too. Like this is not something that I did on my own. We're saying consult a physician. Yes, please. But see your, I yeah. also want to hear what it was like. Yeah. So just super slowly, like 25 milligrams at a time coming down. My medical doctor helped me with that. And I was on a pretty low dose already. And I can't remember like the time frame that we that we did that in. And what is really fascinating though was that there is this, what's the word I'm looking for? Like um residue almost of the medication in your liver and your kidneys. And I learned this about when I was about 27 or 28 when I went to see my first Chinese medicine doctor. And so it took me almost six years to really full feel the full range of my emotions. Oh, wow. It yeah, like now you're really embodying. Exactly. You're going back into your body. You also have a, you know, your relationship to your body is fitness, is health, is wellness. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. So I didn't, um, I didn't really, I don't even remember feeling all of my emotions until I was about 28. Wow. Yeah. And then I remember talking to a good friend of mine and we were talking about this transition from dark motivation to light motivation, that we go from using our pain and our anger and all those things to motivate our purpose in life, right? Mm -hmm. To step fully into like, fuck you, I'm going to become. You are a naysayer, watch the haters hate. Yeah, You know, like that kind of motivation. But then the way that we cope with dark motivation is dark coping mechanisms, not to make them bad. This is just the language that he, he used. So dark motivation would be, or sorry, dark coping would be like alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. Yeah. And then we make this transition where it's almost like that fall from grace, that realization you feel more than you thought you are in someone else's story. Mm -hmm. You are, and we have all these coping mechanisms that you transition to light coping mechanisms, which are meditation, exercise, forest walks, friendship, but staying connected to yourself instead of disconnecting, you stay connected and you dive deeper. And I loved that language because it, I remember hearing once that if you've ever been called or felt like you're the black sheep in your family, mm-hmm. actually realize that you're the light that's inviting them all to wake up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, isn't that so fascinating that we like often minimize or shrink the person who is challenging the status quo or or like stepping out of the story we're in too. So we're so terrified that they're stepping out of it that we're like, well, hey, here's uh, first I'll shame you. I'll bully you. I'll use passive. Have you thought about all the ways you might fail? You know, all these different yeah. ways that I thought, wow, if you start to think of yourself as this light that's starting to emit, that you're actually inviting other people to wake up, it takes your survival strategies and your superpower and makes them now this beacon. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to think about it that way too, because 
I, people have always, I'm just thinking about this story that, that people have created for me. And then I really embodied, which is like, wow, Megan, you're so strong. Mm. Like you're so, you're so capable of doing things on your own. And you just like make these tough decisions and move forward. And the thing that the, the sort of light coping strategy that you mentioned that, I didn't really employ until I would say the last two or three years is friendship and support because I had been through so much as a kid and was able to come out the other side of it, this like successful person. I embodied this idea that like, I don't need anyone and I'm super strong. And so that goes back to that dark coping strategy, right? Of just like isolating and putting your head down and powering through and like- I'm so independent. Yeah. Which is, of course, uh, I get as a, especially for women, you know, now that it's like they women have been socialized and taught to not need anyone to get and also to be needed. You know, like there's so many conflicting, conflicting uh, messages to both men and women, but especially for women. Exactly. Like, don't need a man. Don't take care of yourself. And then you become like this powerhouse who's not connected to your heart. Yeah. Then you become 40 and single like me right now, working back towards single and my available, Ex- gentlemen. Exactly. I've actually just taken on this new practice of saying hi to every guy I think is handsome yes, on the street. Should. So if you see me in Vancouver and I'm saying hi to you, just yeah, that's say a, hello that's right a swipe back. Right. That's in an invitation. That's a swipe <laughs> yeah. right. If a girl looks at you in the eyes and smile, it's not always an invitation. <laughs> yeah. But with Megan, but if, it's if me she says hi. And I say girl, hi. Yeah. Well, and and I think why I love uh, this story and you sharing. So thank you so much for sharing all of this, because for a lot of people, what you shared is their shame is in a box in the back of their closet. That's like, not going to touch that. Don't know why I'm anxious. You know, yeah, you have brought this forward and shared this for other people to learn from. So thank you. You're welcome. Why I love it so much is your gifts have been birthed from your reconnection. And we talked a little bit about this cerebral intellectualization of your feelings, but you're for, you know, once you started to do the work and get rid of the coping strategies, the drugs, the alcohol, Mm -hmm. you started to really connect back to yourself. And now it's become your work is like teaching people to re-embody, but explain to people where now, where your gifts have gone, because all these things that were numbed and shut off which that's why I love stories because now we go back and we go, oh, she always had this. We just didn't know how to handle it. And we didn't listen. Yeah. Sometimes I think the child in our family is Yoda. You know, they're like, hey, mom, dad, just wanted to let you know that our whole family is headed down a dark path. And I just wanted to tell you. And they're <laughs> Maybe like, we should do something about it. He's so cute. He's funny. Hey, <laughs> where'd you learn that? Yeah. He just watched Star Wars. <laughs> there is no try. That's my Yoda. That was bad. Wasn't the best I've ever heard. No, it okay. was actually the worst. But please, so <laughs> yeah, where has it brought you? Yeah, so where I am today, and there is like, you know, a bunch of pieces now from that point forward. There are a bunch of pieces that we could look back to, and I do look back to that were like SOS points in my life, <laughs> and and I had to learn new coping strategies. But you know, I think coming back to 2015, so I would have been 35, 36, and just really unsatisfied with my life and knowing that there was something about me that I could feel and sense, but I could not grasp and I couldn't embrace. And around that time too, I had been seeing my Reiki teacher and my Reiki healer for a couple of years before that. 
And around that same time, she said to me, you know, you don't feel your emotions. And I, I was like, yeah, I do. You're like, I can label them too. Listen, do you want me to label them for you? Listen to all these ways that I can label my yeah. emotions. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're really good at naming emotions. You, oh, I like her. She was great. Her name's Erica. You do not feel them though. And that shook me. That like truly rocked my world because not only did I think I was a master communicator, a master emotional person, but I also thought I was the best communicator in my relationships. And turns out that none of that was true. And I was like seeking connection, mostly through men that was never reciprocal, never coming back to me. And when she said that, it just stuck. I just thought that's got to be the key. Enter you. And we, you and I started working together and at the same time working with Erica to really get back in touch with how my body felt. And she does that. And I do that now in my work mm -hmm. as using Reiki and my coaching and my guiding by asking people like, where do you feel what you just said in your body? And even right now I can give you an example, you know, when you and I first started talking and I was telling a little bit of the harder parts of my story I really felt it in my belly. I really felt what lots of people would describe as butterflies or anxiety. And now I can be so present with my emotions and what it feels like in my body that I can breathe into that place and become present to the, the moment and still tell my story without kind of being triggered. So it's that was kind of the start of it like you said, getting rid of the drugs and alcohol as coping mechanisms also really, really helped. I have been single from that point forward in 2015. There's been guys around. Yeah, I was going to say, wait, but, I mean, you've had some some interactions. I don't know. Yeah, let's, you've dated. let's just clarify you've that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've dated. Yeah, I've dated since then, but nothing serious and nothing permanent. Good serious teachers, though. That's for fucking sure. Yeah. If right. you're listening, thank you. I was just thinking, actually, as you were talking about the butterflies and the yeah. feeling of anxiety. Yeah. How, if you think about butterflies when you're interacting with someone, right? Mm -hmm. I really, that made me think about how, because, you know, butterflies are really the body's way of saying like, uh, and but we associate it with, do you have butterflies? And I actually wonder if they're like wound related, mm -hmm. that I could actually get rejected by this person. That's what we're now Oh, I could really be abandoned by this person. I could I could care about them because their wound matches my wound. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. So what I encourage my clients to do, whatever they're feeling in their body, and oftentimes people will feel like my clients, people who come to see me for coaching or for Reiki will often feel things in their throat. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm sure that I'm going to say this and a bunch of people will resonate a feeling of tightness or... Um, a lump in their throat, the feeling yeah. of almost crying, holding yeah. back tears. Um, a lot of my clients will feel it there or in the place that I said it. And the so solar plexus, stomach so, area. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so all body um, feelings, sensations are just your body and your emotions and your soul asking for a little bit of attention. Just, Hey, this is activating something in me. Let's look deeper. Let's get curious at what that is. Because in some cases it might be excitement. Like, God, that guy's so hot or that woman is so hot. Like, I'd love to talk to them. I'd love to say hi to them on the street. And in some cases it could be, 
oh, your wound is my wound. Let's see how far we can get in this codependent relationship, you know? Yeah, I think if you're used to choosing people who aren't great for you, Mm -hmm. or there's a relational pattern that you're like, why does that keep happening? Yeah. So important to pay attention to your your chemistry. Exactly. Because it's so wound-based. Yeah. I was listening to uh, Alan Watts the other day, Mm -hmm. and he was talking about the eroticization of pain. Oh, yeah. And he said something that really like made my brain go, oh, my God, we're going to this is an interesting construct. And he was talking about how sadomasochism, right? That Mm -hmm. sadists love the pain in others. They get aroused from it. Mm -hmm. And masochists get aroused from their own pain. Right. And he was talking about how when when we feel feelings that we are not comfortable, he didn't articulate it this way. He also sounds like David Attenborough, so he (laughs) sounds a lot better than I do. Um, But he said, well, what I ended up extrapolating, just so it's easier and shorter, is that when we have feelings that we're uncomfortable with, one of our survival strategies is actually to not feel them, is to associate eroticism with the negative feeling. Uh And I started to see like, oh my gosh, so people who seek pain or date people who cause them pain are actually and then have crazy sex after or whatever right are actually using it as a coping strategy to not feel the feeling so the eroticization of pain which i formerly only sort of thought of the pathology being i'm attracted to this person who hurts me mm-hmm. so that i can heal which right. i think is still true yes but just starting to see that the actual association with eroticism and orgasm or just pleasure is actually a way of coping And I for sure used to use intimacy as a way of coping with my loneliness and the feeling that I wasn't desirable. I could get this quick shot of desirability, but then if I, if they were going to love me long time, like longer than that long time, obviously (laughs) six minutes is long, um, they, that they all of a sudden see self-deprecation grades around the Um, they would, then I would run. Yeah. So it's interesting to think of it as we're all sort of masochists in some way. Sure. Um, I don't want to generalize all of us, but I thought that's interesting how that association with butterflies is actually leading to, I just think it's so important to follow our pathways. A hundred percent. You know, your body, gosh, and this isn't just like, I see this in my clients a lot. I saw this in myself. Erica saw it in me when she called me out on it. Sometimes we actually can't feel our body. Yeah. We have disassociated from the pain of our emotions, which show up, shows up as pain in our body so much that we can't feel it. So if you can't feel your emotion, that's okay. It takes some time and some practice. I can help you with that. But when we do feel it, yeah, it's just, just get curious. You can even speak to the feeling in your body as if it's a person and say, what are you here for? Mm-hmm. What are you here to show me? What What do I need to know from you? To welcome. Exactly. Yeah. Because so many people don't welcome them. I, I was uh, working with someone not that long ago who said um, their friend had died like years ago. And, and they said, uh, you know, I should be over this by now. Mm. And I was like, your friend died. Mm-hmm. Why should you be over that? Maybe you will never, whatever over it means. Yeah. You know, we explored that and it was just this welcoming of grief, of anger, of someone's life being taken before we are ready. Yeah. And I see that so often, that language, I shouldn't feel this instead of, but you do. Yeah. So you have shame now because of your language about the feeling because you're afraid of the feeling or you don't know how to welcome it. And that's why I want the those who might resonate with this to 
if you resonate with Megan's story in any way in wanting to reintegrate your emotions into your body, if that is something that you're learn, wanting to learn, definitely seek Megan out. Yeah, I'm happy to help. You have really like, I got to say, it's been what, four years? Yeah, twenty Which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like three and a half probably. Mm-hmm. And man, you just crushed life. Yeah, there was a, a real, it just happened super quickly. Like as soon as I committed to working with you, that was it, right? Like it was this commitment from from myself to you to, and I'm going to use the word fix, but I wasn't broken, but it's just oh. the easiest language to use to like fix what I had been doing to choose a different path to create a new neural pathway. And that's what I did with our work together. And then I went on to work with other coaches and decided to become a coach myself. And then that opened up, I think the thing that you want me to get at, or you sort of asked about earlier and what I alluded to when I said there was something that I always knew about myself that I couldn't grasp. And that is my, my intuition. And I I labeled it earlier as being empathic and that's a big part of it. So if I want to, and this is what Mark alluded to in terms of the boundaries, if I want to, I can feel the emotions of every person in a room in my body. And by the way, that's likely why I turned off the sensations of the Mm -hmm. emotion in my body as well. That's a big piece of it. And so when I learned that that is part of my makeup, I learned how to not pick those emotions up, how to just turn it off. When I started working, like when I decided to become a coach, I went to see Erica, my Reiki healer, and she, I told her, I'm going to become a life coach. I'm going to take this training. And she's like, okay, listen, (laughs) she goes, I, you know, that I believe in free will. I don't like to tell people what I see or sense about them without them coming to it on their own, but you have a gift that is um, greater than your brain. She's like, you are an intuitive, you have psychic gifts. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Like psychic gifts. I don't do drugs anymore. (laughs) So this is going to run into a wall. Yeah. I've never resonated with hallucinogenics. So, (laughs) And, And she encouraged me at that point to study something metaphysical. So Reiki, shamanism, and and it wasn't, she wasn't, she was like, study with anyone you want. Yeah. I chose to study with her. And um, as I became attuned to Reiki, my gifts became stronger and stronger and stronger. And now that's, now I know, A, that I've been living my intuition my entire life. So when I went to the police, I knew, I just knew that was the right choice. And I've never struggled with decision making, making, which a lot of people do. And now I know that's because that's my intuition that I've always been able to make a decision super quickly and stick with it and know that it's the right decision, um, whether I had all the information or not. And so now in my work, not only do I bring in Reiki and um, although I'm not trained in somatic experiencing, I bring in the somatic experience into my work. Um, coaching through a path that you and I both took, which is called positive psychology and my intuition, which again, guides my entire life. And there's greater pieces to that. Like I have the ability to channel. I have the ability to like receive messages outside of my body. And that all happened basically by making the decision to change my life three and a half years ago. Well, one thing that you said to me when I remember we were talking when I was in New York Mm -hmm. and I was talking to you about 
quitting alcohol. Right. Yeah. And you had said to me that yourself quitting any of those things was in a lot of ways, not permanently, but changing your relationship to alcohol um, and starting in that idea of sobriety, mm -hmm. that that was a big opening of a gateway. Yeah. And that for me, I was, I remember, I mean, there were so many, the universe was like, Hey Mark, you want to pay attention? You yeah. Pay attention? Yeah. Pay attention? <laughs> and I was like, no, cause there's a great 12 year old scotch I'd like to drink. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, that really resonated with me. And I remember being like, okay, what's the next level? What's the next level when you say no to something that's been, even if it's on the mildest way, a numbing agent. Yeah. I think honestly, we're going to all end up on some, in some way, reprivatizing ourselves. Like mm. that'll be the future of tech is like actually reprivatizing. I don't think I know what that means. Like getting yourself not being so seen. Okay. On like social actually or... giving you some form of privacy, mm -hmm. like removing your name from things, you know, starting to, but also, and what I mean, I guess more so by that is actually learning and taking breaks from technology mm -hmm. because it will, it will be this ability to like step back into our feeling, step back into our knowing, Yeah, you know, which you know, that if, although social media can obviously be very connective, that's how, hey, that's why I'm here. That's how we met. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It has a beautiful light side. That's right. But like anything that is super engaging and super exciting and mm -hmm. super dopamine rich, mm -hmm. it can quickly become a dark force. And I, didn't, I think, I guess my point is <laughs> that as you remove those things, you become more connected to self. Yeah. And then your gifts just went. Blah. Yeah. It's fascinating, actually. At the same time, I started connecting back to nature more. And I said earlier, like going for forest walks. I was out on one of the Gulf Islands recently with some friends on Galliano, and we went for this huge nature walk, like four hours. And I was thinking back, reflecting is one of my favorite ways to see how far I've come. And I remember thinking back to times in the past where I would be with other people in nature and they would all be like appreciating the beauty of nature in this really natural way. And I would think, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to say, what to look at, how it's, to feel. Clouds are really great. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, man. But it was so awkward for me to be in nature. And now that I've taken away, and I think it's, I think you're right. Like, a, I've learned how to feel my emotions. B, I've in, like invited all of my emotions into the room, not all at once and not fully every time, but everyone's welcome. I've embraced my shadow. I've like stopped using drugs and alcohol as a coping, coping me mechanism. And now I can, I go outside and walk in Stanley Park and I literally talk to the trees. <laughs> I love it. You know me, I'm like, yeah, me and the trees are homies. Yeah, I hug or them. Or homies. But you know what I mean? Yeah, I put my third eye against them. I literally put my hand on them all the time when I walk by them and I just thank them. Yeah, Because exactly. there's, you know, if there's one thing that's true about nature is mm -hmm. one, it doesn't ask for anything in return. And two, it just gives. It just like the symphony, Alan Watts, who's one of my favorites, so that's probably why you hear me quote him a lot. But he talks about how if you pay attention the world is just a giant light show. Yes. It's a, it's a symphony and an orchestra that's here for you. And that there are, like a tree doesn't look at another tree and they're like, yo man, your branch is a little skinny. Mm. And like, oh, your trunk, it's not looking so good. Yeah. You know, and and they share, what I think is so cool about the forest Yes, is how like a tree will find out that other trees are being over foraged be through a network that apparently fungus helps right. transfer I've the information. This. Yeah. 
And then it sends a message to other trees down the road, miles away, yeah. to increase the acidity in their leaves so they don't get foraged, overforaged too. And I'm like, what? This is amazing. It is amazing. And you realize that there's so much more going on than just a tree trunk. Yeah. We and were, oxygen. We were talking earlier about the OA. Oh, yeah. I like that show. If you guys haven't watched the OA, watch it. It is so really good. good. Yeah. And there's a whole thing about trees in it in the second season. And it's weird. So just be prepared. It yeah, is weird. But it's but also it's good weird. Like I really relate to the main character. So if you guys are curious about what I'm like in real do you life. dance like she does? Oh, like do the Yeah, the, the weird dance that she has. No, but. Do you I, dance like uh, Ellen? From, or sorry, what's her name? No. Uh, Elaine from Seinfeld. No. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Elaine on Seinfeld. Oh my gosh. That's the dance. If you're young, We're also you dating ourselves. Know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. They're like, Seinfeld was great. But Who are these old people? VHS. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, life can be so wonderful when you decide to fuck what anybody else says and just embrace yourself. And that's way easier for me to say on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. P.S. It took me 37 years, really, to to get there. And even I was out for Pride the other night. And I was telling you this on Sunday and I was dancing with my best friend. And I said, this is, you know, because Pride is all about acceptance and self-acceptance. And I said, like, this is how I want to feel all the time. It's like freedom to be who I am, confident. I said, like, I want to be 100% that bitch all the time. <laughs> and and that comes from this sense of just really embracing who I am, all of me, the weird away side of me, like talking to aliens and channeling people and the really bright human side, which has gotten me so far. And now I just like to combine them both and try to show and, and support other people in doing the same thing. That's beautiful. Yeah, it feels beautiful. Yeah, being around pride is, is, I mean, for people who are like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. It's like for gay culture, it's a celebration of gay culture. Yeah. The community of love is love. Well, and that, and it's also one thing, you know, I've been celebrating pride for many years and I only kind of resonated this year with the idea that pride is actually the celebration of the anniversary of Stonewall. Mm-hmm. And Stonewall mm-hmm. was... About yeah, it was fifty years this year. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, definitely Google it. But it was kind of the first uprising of queer people and trans folk in New York who had had enough of being marginalized and brutalized by the police in New York City. And so it was a four day and four night protest. Wow. And um, Pride signifies it's normally in June in Vancouver. It's in August, but the Pride Month. Um, memorializes and and is the anniversary of Stonewall. What a beautiful anniversary. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for teaching us that. Yeah. I remember you telling me that before too. Um, So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. The, I I think what I love so much about that culture, Mm -hmm. like all of, all of the parts of it. Yeah. Is that we're all sort of stuck in closets and there's something about uh, people who have to come out in order to feel like themselves from a gender, sexuality, whatever it is. That is, if we're willing, we can be inspired by mm-hmm. and realize that we're stuck in some sort of role and story that is not ours, which is scary because sometimes, often, almost always, stepping out of that story is actually means potentially hurting people. Oh, yeah. But the other side of that is staying stuck in a box that 
causes us to be sad, depressed, oh man, all the things. Yeah. We need numbing agents in order to say, this is the life I signed up for. And it's like, it's actually okay to not just to get curious about why we think we are destined to be in a prison of a choice that is from a different level of consciousness. I think that's exactly it. If I think back to eight-year-old me, I made a choice at eight to hide my emotions, hide my sensitivity, and stay in a box of my own making. And, you know, I, I can use that analogy. It's so perfect. I actually um, shared a video of this on my Instagram yesterday about why pride is so important to me, why some of my very best friends are queer people, is because they have had to make the ultimate or choose the ultimate act of self-acceptance mm -hmm. in coming out of the closet. Yeah. And I encourage everybody to ask their gay friends or their gay colleagues in a safe way how they came out, because that is often the most arduous story you will ever hear in your life, actually. Yeah. Um, coming out to yourself is the, the hardest thing a lot of people can do, even more hard or harder than coming out to your family and friends. Wow. And so I feel totally accepted by the queer community most of the time because they're very accepting of other people and themselves. Yeah. It's powerful. To that. Yeah. Um, okay. So thank you for being here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And where can people find you? Well, as luck would have it, my friend, Mark Groves, have it. when I was thinking about naming my business, told me just to name it my name. <laughs> yeah, that's simple. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so uh, everywhere online, you can find me at Megan Jane Suter. Spell that out because, you know, so many different hipster millennial ways of spelling names now. Yeah. Okay. It's just Megan, M-E-G-A-N, Jane, J-A-N-E. Suter is my last name that looks like Sautar. So S-O-U-T-A-R. I'm sure you'll link to it too, no? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to link it out. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get right now, her right away, yeah. just go at Megan Jane Suter. Yeah. Dot um, com or on Instagram or yeah. on Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. I'm so glad to be here. Appreciate you. Yeah, I love you. Love you too. Okay, thanks. Thank you.